We're going to continue our series this morning on the heart of the kings, the study of a dozen kings of Israel and Judah, just sort of drawing out one defining feature from their reign and just one defining aspect of God's character that is expressed through their reign and then yeah, some, you know, one big takeaway for us. And so, yeah, we'll be talking about Ahaz this morning and faithlessness and the exaltedness of God. Ahaz, to sum it up, was a train wreck. And a train wreck that will hopefully be familiar to many of us because it's a picture of just, yeah, our condition and our state apart from the grace of God in Christ. Just what we all look like and speak like and act like before God intervenes. So we'll be in Second Kings 16 and Second Chronicles 28, Second <clears throat> Kings 16, where we'll focus on just the faithlessness of Ahaz. It's going to be a word that God uses in several places in Second Kings 16 and Second Chronicles 28 to sum up Ahaz's reign, that he was faithless. And yet also we'll see in Second Chronicles 28 just how God is going to use his reign to show his, his exaltedness, his worthiness of worship. And God being so exalted in power that there's something he deserves from all of us, it's our faith. It's that we would trust him and look to him and rely on him and depend upon him and delight in him. And so let's go to him now in prayer as we jump in. <clears throat> well, Father, we believe what scripture says that behold, you are exalted in power. There's no teacher like you. You created the heavens and the earth. That through your son, you spoke all these things into existence. You are exalted in holiness, exalted in beauty, exalted in power, exalted in grace and mercy, exalted in majesty. That who is a God like our God? And so we pray that you would give us hearts to believe. That if we are already yours, that our faith would grow deeper. That if we are not yours, that those who are here that are far from you, that you would give them faith to repent, faith to trust in the gospel, faith to worship you and to follow you. We pray that you would give us, your church, greater faith, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, from the moment Satan <clears throat> entered the scene of creation in Genesis 3, all the way to sort of his final rebellion in Revelation 20, his ambition is to blind the hearts of the unbelieving in order to keep them unbelieving. Or to sow seeds of disbelief and faithlessness toward God in the hearts of God's people. So it's either to keep the unbelieving unbelieving or take the believing and sow seeds of unbelief in them that, that they would act in a way that is faithless toward God. Jesus says of him in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, when he tempts Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he's going to tempt them to, to be faithless toward God, to disobey his word and in doing so to bring about their death. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
To Eve, he's going to say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1. So he tempted Eve just as he tempts all of us to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. How much temptation begins with the statement, did God really say? Satan then says in Genesis 3.4, you will not surely die. Even though God says, no, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Those exact words. Satan takes those exact words and says, you will not surely die. He tempts us to doubt the severity of sin against the Lord. How many of us will doubt the severity of sin? Doubt what it really means to rebel against God. He's going to go on to say in Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So even doubts here God's goodness. God doesn't really want what's good for you. He's withholding. He just knows in the day that you eat this, you'll be like him. And the irony is they'll, they'll be like him sort of in one way. They'll kind of know what evil is. But then they'll be less like him in every other conceivable way. And so Satan doesn't tell that part. But he tempts us to doubt the goodness of God. Like God is withholding his best from us. And what would really be great for us is just to strike out on our own. That we can be like God without God. That's the claim. That it would be better if we were independent. And Adam and Eve fell for it. Every human being ever born on the earth falls for it. Except one. Except Jesus Christ. We fall for lowering God and exalting ourselves. I think it's Victor Huger that said, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, we've been returning the favor. We create God in our image. We lower him and exalt ourselves. We fall for dishonoring God and worshiping idols. And King Ahaz is going to embody that kind of faithfulness, faithlessness toward the Lord. And the Lord will prove just how exalted he is in judgment. Just how exalted he is in deserving humanity. In fact, the gap is so great between the faithlessness of humanity and the exaltedness of God that he will actually send his own son, Jesus, to bridge that gap. Because there's no climbing back. God's going to send his son to take on human form and bring us back to God. That's how in our gap is. So the life of Ahaz is going to prove just how helpless we are in our idolatry. Just how much it will go from bad to worse. There's this really painful video to watch. It's probably 10 to 15 years old, but it was this ice storm that struck, I think in Minneapolis or Minnesota somewhere, just out of the blue. I don't know who history. And there's this massive, it's one of the largest pileups of vehicles in the U.S. history. And it's on video, where it shows a segment of it where these cars wreck and they're blocking the road and then all these cars, and it's foggy, and they're coming through the fog, and they realize what's happening, and they try to stop, and they can't, and they just keep ramming in more cars. And people get out and start walking into the road to try to get people to slow down. And then people start seeing those people and have to skid to avoid them, and you see people almost getting obliterated by vehicles coming through. Everything people did to try to make it better made it worse. It's like reading the Bible when we try to author our own salvation. And we try to fix our own problems. So the faithlessness 
of Ahaz. Second Kings chapter 16, verse 1. We're going to see this faithlessness in five big ways. We'll just take them one at a time. The first is going to be the faithlessness of false worship. Verse 1. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So he has as a sophomore in college when he comes to the throne. And in verse 2 it says, He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Rather than follow in the footsteps of David, one of his sort of great-great-grandfathers, he's going to follow the example of the wicked kings of the northern kingdom that followed in the ways of Jeroboam. And so I think it's important to realize, especially if you're young, there's not some little grace period in your late teens and early 20s where you just get to try the world out. I mean, the clock is ticking. Deeds are being written in some very important books in heaven. And there's even kings we'll see in Israel and Judah that came to the throne when they were like nine or ten. And the Bible said, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like nine or ten years old. And God's assessing it. God's recording it. So here Ahaz comes to the throne at the age of 20 and immediately gets to work rebelling. Because he's not taking his religious cues from the word of God, but from the false practices of the Ammonites who worshipped Molech, who sacrificed their children to him by burning them in fire, or literally causing them to pass through the fire. And God calls those practices, what's the word? Despicable. The very reason God brought in Israel to wipe them out of the promised land, because the evils of the Ammonites had become complete. And to God, they were despicable. And here's Ahaz that just takes them right back. It's not all. He also made sacrifices to false gods, notice, on the high places. And under every green tree, that's a statement. Not a few, but all. Every green tree, they're going to offer false sacrifices. That's how comprehensively Ahaz is going to adopt the idolatry of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them. I think these really are the kinds of stories and passages that tell us that we should not believe any kind of nonsense that we actually know what's best for ourselves, not God. That we actually know what we need. That we actually know what the world needs. Story after story in Scripture just keeps proving it. God knows what's best, we don't. The Lord is for us, and we tend to be against us. I mean, think about that. Nobody's more against you than you. Have you ever thought about that? Nobody's caused more destruction in your life, more heartache in your life. Because no one's soul was ever destroyed by somebody else's sin. It's always our own. And so we just tend to, in the world, keeps feeding that, okay, nobody knows better than you what you need. <clears throat> nobody knows better than you what, how you should live. And the Bible just keeps reminding us that, no, God is for us. We are against us. The Lord knows what's good for us. We don't know what's good for us. 
The Lord drives out enemy nations, and then we invite them right back. It's like God goes through our property, clears out all the mines, all the hidden bombs, all the live grenades, and when he's done, we just start lobbing them back into our backyard again for our kids to go play around them. The Lord gives a law at Mount Sinai to guard the people from sin, to preserve their covenant <clears throat> with the Lord. And while he's doing it, Israel's at, Israel's at the base of the mountain making a golden calf and worshiping it and rising up to commit sexual immorality in Exodus 32. The Lord's going to defend Israel against Balaam and the Midianites in Numbers 22. Then some chapters later, Israel's going to take the counsel of Balaam in order to worship the gods of Midian and have sex with all the Midianite men and women. That's, that's the repeated cycle of Israel's history. God defends, and then they open the door for Satan to attack. God clears out the trouble, then they invite it right back in. Because false worship is self-destruction. I mean, what do we think pornography is fundamentally about? It's about false worship. What do we think drug and alcohol abuse is fundamentally about? It's about false worship. To be enraged when we don't get our way. To love sports more than Christ. Food more than Christ. Sex more than Christ. Political victory more than Christ. It all grows from the same basic root system. The exaltation of the creature over the creator. False worship. And Ahaz became skilled at this. Every green tree, high places, all over the place. Number two, we see the faithlessness of Ahaz in seeking help from the world. Look at verse five. The Lord's going to start orchestrating all these events now to get Ahaz's attention. Remember, God could have just ended him. But instead, he's going to start orchestrating events to try to get Ahaz to wake up. Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't conquer him. little warning shot across the bow for Ahaz. And at that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Elah from Syria and drove, or for Syria, and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And the Edomites came to Elath, where they dwell to this day. So God's going to start chipping away at the kingdom. Warning shots across the bow. At any point, he can just humble himself before God and repent and cry out for mercy. Instead, verse 7. So he has sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria, from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found, where? In the house of the Lord, and in the treasures of the king's house, and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. So the enemies of Ahaz attack, and rather than call out to the Lord for help, Ahaz is going to run to the world. Look at the words he used. To the king of Assyria, he says, I am your servant and your son. Who should he be saying that to? Is it not the Lord? Is that not what he should be saying to God? In fact, those are the exact words that Elijah is going to use in his address to God in 1 Kings 18. He's going to say, I am your servant. When he's calling on the Lord to answer from heaven to defeat 
Baal and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He's going to say, I am your servant. Well, here Ahaz is going to use those exact words, but not to Yahweh. No, he's going to declare it to an idolatrous king. Tiglath-Pileser, whose name means my trust is in the son of Asherah. And Asherah was the temple, the name of the temple, dedicated to the false god Asher. That's who Ahaz is talking to. And he says to him, come up and rescue me. He's not going to look to the one and only Lord, Yahweh, to rescue him. He's not going to say, I am your servant, your son. Please come and rescue. Does God hear those kinds of prayers? Cried out humbly in faith. Is that not the story of the kings and chronicles and First and Second Samuel? Is when his people humble themselves and cry out. He hears. It's not who he's looking to. He looks to the king of Assyria who worships Asher, and the king of Assyria is going to come to the rescue, which may appear to be a success, but it's actually a defeat of the worst kind. There are times when the Lord will let you make pursuits into the world and he will let it be successful. And we shouldn't think for one millisecond that that's success. Same here. It's defeat of the worst kind. Because sometimes the Lord will let our worldly efforts work to further test our trust in him. And are we interpreting life through his word or just through outcomes? Look, it worked. He must be for me. Oh, it didn't work. He must be against me. Is that how God wants us to assess our lives? What circumstantially works out? Or he wants us to assess it through his word. Sometimes the Lord will give us over to false hopes. And then we receive the full weight of the cost. We see the faithlessness of Ahaz in seeking help from the world. We also see the faithlessness of Ahaz in imitating the world. Look at verse 10. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, who had just conquered Damascus, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. This is not the Assyrian altar, but the Syrian altar that's there. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. Where have you seen that language before? I'm having you build something that's a model of something else. Be exact in the details for how you build it. Remember, those were God's words to Moses when it came to constructing the tabernacle. Okay, be exact. Be precise in these details because this is a model of something else. Well, here's, here's Ahaz doing it. It's not the tabernacle. It's an altar in Syria to the false god. I think it's Helad or Hadad. Is there a false god that that altar's to? And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all the king, that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar, went up on it burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw blood of his peace offerings on the altar. And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar, not the Lord's altar, his altar, and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest saying, on the great altar, wait, whose is the great altar? 
That's his altar. On the great altar, my altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. My own little personal altar now that probably would have had animals that they slaughtered on it and then they would do sort of divination and examine the entrails of that animal to determine the will of the gods. So now the Lord's altar is going to become my own personal pet altar that I'm going to practice divination on. That's his thinking. Because to him, it's just, it's just a slab. Uriah the priest did all this. There's a massive amount of tragedy in those words. Uriah the priest who exists to teach the people the difference between the holy and the profane, who exists to mediate between God and people, who exists to protect the people and the king from this very kind of nonsense, this very kind of idolatry that's going to get them destroyed. Well, no, Uriah the priest, he did all this, as King Ahaz commanded, not as the Lord commanded. Again, Uriah's not reading his Bible either. Or if he is, he doesn't care. He's reading letters from King Ahaz, and he's doing what those command. But Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Exodus, not reading those words and doing what those command. So since Ahaz sees life through pragmatism, circumstances, immediate results, he's just going to cast aside the word of God, the worship of God for the idolatry of the world. We also see the faithlessness of Ahaz being ashamed of the Lord before the world. In other words, it's going to get worse in verse 17. And King Ahaz cut off the frames of the stands and removed the basin from them, and he took down the sea from off the bronze oxen that were under it and put it on a stone pedestal. And the covered way for the Sabbath that had been built inside the house and the outer entrance For the king, he caused to go around the house of the Lord, here's the key phrase, because of the king of Assyria. There's these oxen that had been carved, these bronze oxen that were the stand to the basin that God had commanded to be made and to be built. And there's something about that image that was going to be offensive to the king of Assyria. Probably something about the oxen that would have been offensive to the king of Assyria. They would have seen that as, you know, a violation of their own religious practice. So Ahaz just removes it and puts a stone pedestal there to put the basin on instead. And there would have been all this decor, all this imagery, all these things that God had commanded to be made on the outside and in the outer court and on the inside that would have been all this imagery of of Yahweh, giving honor to Yahweh, glory to Yahweh. And King Ahaz is like, you know what? We can't let the king of Assyria see all that. That's going to really offend him. So we're going to sort of redirect the way into the temple so that we're not embarrassed before the king of Assyria about all this Yahweh stuff that we have here. And so he's ashamed of Yahweh. That these things that would have been an offense to the king of Assyria, he removes. So who's he not concerned with offending? Isn't that scary? When we're worried with offending the world, but not God. 
We're worried with what, about what they think, but not what the Lord thinks. And so we start just trimming our lives, reshaping our eyes, retooling our lives, covering certain things up, putting a certain foot forward so that the world would be pleased, or at least so that they wouldn't mock or ridicule or, or scorn. That's tempting, right? We're not meant to read Ahaz and go, wow, he's so far out there. No, this is in the flesh. This is hardwired in. This is how sin operates. He's ashamed of the Lord before the world. He's reconfiguring his faith, his devotion, his worship to be tolerable to the world. Always a danger for the church. Always a danger in our own lives. That's why Paul's going to say to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. He's in prison awaiting his execution. Second Timothy, when he's writing this. He's about to get beheaded, and he knows it. He says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me or of the testimony of our Lord. What does he mean? Well, because to, to be affiliated with the Apostle Paul at that point, to, to, to come and visit him in prison, to support him in prison, to bring a cloak to him in prison, as he's asking, to bring the parchment and the scrolls to him in prison. All these things is going to be to align with the Apostle Paul, who's going to get killed by the Roman Empire. It's to align with Paul and what Paul stands for. So that's why Paul has to say to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He says, but share with me in suffering for his sake. That's always the invitation of the gospel. Yes, believe, repent, be saved, be reconciled to God, and then suffer for his name. Well, he says, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That's too much, too big a cost. It gets worse. It's also the faithlessness of Ahaz in giving glory to the world. We see this in 2 Chronicles 28, if you want to turn over there. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. At the end of 2 Kings 16, it says that the other acts of Ahaz are recorded in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. Well, that's where we can see in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 22, one more act of faithlessness in Ahaz. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. So there's the word that God uses to sum up his reign. He was faithless. And in the times of his distress, he became more faithless. This same King Ahaz, he wants to make sure we're right on who this is. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. It's a way of giving glory to these false gods. Because again, Ahaz, he's not interpreting his life through the word of God. He's not realizing, wait, no, these weren't real gods that defeated you. The, it's the real God who defeated you. Who's Yahweh? You didn't see that. And so in the time of his distress, which refers to this time when the pressures and the oppressions and the rule of these enemy kings and kingdoms are pressing in on them, the Lord did this to humble Ahaz to soften Ahaz, to bring him to conviction, to repentance, to reliance upon the Lord. Because the Lord does so many great things, use that word, in the time of our distress. That's not an enemy of God's people. That's a friend of God's people. 
the time of our distress. Listen to this, Psalm 18.6, David declares, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. David knew that. In the time of his distress, he cries out, and the Lord heard me. From his temple, he heard me. Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. We could go on for days with those kinds of verses. In my distress, I called on Yahweh. I called on my God, and he heard me. He listened to me. He cared for me. And it didn't mean he just fixed everything perfectly. No, it means he strengthened me. He comforted me. He, he helped me see and understand what he's doing. He showed me how all this is moving in a direction that's for his glory and my good. So the Lord hears in many different kinds of ways. Well, Ahaz, what will he do in his distress? Yet more faithless to the Lord. That's what he'll do. Previous acts were faithless, but in a time of his distress, even more faithlessness. That's why we need to realize that when distress comes, I mean, that's where faith is forged. That's where it's exposed. But that's also where it's refined. That's why James 1 says, Count it all joy when you face trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work in you so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How many of you here want to be mature and complete, not lacking anything? Put up your hand. Everybody. Well, then count it all joy when you face trials of any kind. The great thing is we don't have to diagnose it. We don't have to categorize it. Any kind of trial, any form it takes, count it joy. Because in that, God will teach us perseverance, will teach us greater faith. In our distress, we call on the Lord and he teaches us. He hears us and he grows us. Not Ahaz. Instead, in his distress, he's just going to keep sacrificing to gods of the nations who defeated him in battle. So he thinks. And so rather than interpret the circumstances through the word of God as the mighty, providential working of God through the affairs of human history to sanctify his people, which is what the word of God would teach him if he was interpreting life through it, Ahaz instead interprets the truth about God through his circumstances. Since these enemies defeated me, their God must be real, and my God must be false. That's interpreting life through circumstances, rather than interpret circumstances through the Word of God. How does God's Word, when you put it on like a pair of lenses, tell us to interpret life? That's why when he says that he's given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through a true knowledge of him, that's what he's talking about. He's not saying the Bible is an encyclopedia of every answer to every specific question, but rather it's a lens through which you can interpret all of life and see it the way God sees it. Second Kings 16, 19, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Hezekiah his son reigned in his place. We're going to look at Hezekiah next time, but one takeaway here is he's going to leave his son a mess to clean up. 
I mean a mess. That's why you don't want your kid to be known as a great reformer king. Right? Because that means you messed it up pretty bad. If your kid is one of the greatest reform kings of all time, it means you drove that thing way down in a ditch. That God's going to use him to bring it all the way back. That's what he's going to give to Hezekiah to interpret. He's going to go to the grave unbelieving, unrepentant, to then face the God of whom he was ashamed in the world. What a terrible moment that is. You were afraid of the king of Assyria? Who's going to be like worm food, just like you? And then he's going to see God, of whom he was ashamed. But not little copy temples on earth that you can rearrange and do stuff, but the real thing. I mean, just to think he's going to be there in the throne room of God. Oh, there's the altar that I jacked with on earth. Oh, there's, there's why the oxen were there with the basin on it. Because those are copies of real things. And now I'm looking at the real thing. It's not how we want to wake up. Lord have mercy. So we see the exaltedness of God just sort of woven through the reign and life of Ahaz. Firstly, just the exaltedness of God in deserving worship. Second Chronicles 28, verse 1, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. In other words, David lived and reigned in a way that exalted and honored the Lord. David never worshipped idols. David never traded in Yahweh for some other god. Ahaz did. That's why verse 2, he even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations. Remember in 2 Kings 16, he called it despicable. Here he calls it an abomination, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So he's going to worship objects of metal, objects of stone that weren't worthy of that worship while lowering and demeaning God. And so just how God inspires the story to be written screams at us, he deserves worship. God is exalted. God is worthy of praise. Nothing else is. Ahaz did not do what was right. And so just in those kinds of phrases in the Bible, we learn so much that what's right is to worship Yahweh. What's wrong is to worship anything else. And so it shows us that God is exalted. We also see the exaltedness of God in judging false worship. Look at verse 5. Therefore the Lord, his God, gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, which Ahaz isn't comprehending. The Lord gave him over to the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel, again, given into the hand, who struck him with a great force. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day. How costly is idolatry? 120,000 in one day, all of them men of valor. But it doesn't do a whole lot of good when the Lord gives you over. All that training, all that equipping, all that. 
which is the danger sometimes, even being in any country that boasts in the strength of its military. Being in any country that boasts and look at the technology, look at what we're able to do, look at our capacities. 120,000, all of them men of valor, God said, I'll give them over in one day. Because they had forsaken the Lord. That's why, the God of their fathers. It's so hard for us to comprehend this, isn't it? That if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? But if the Lord is against us, what does it matter who's for us? And Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, killed Messiah, the king's son, and Azrakam, the commander of the palace, and Elkanah, the next in authority to the king. In other words, the Lord's starting to chip away at the inner circle. Ahaz sees his family tree and hears his son, and God just removes that branch. Because those military battles were outward expressions of spiritual battles. Because the spiritual battle is always the biggest battle. It's not what we do with swords, it's what we do on our knees is where the fight is. Rather than build the house of Ahaz, the Lord begins to tear it down. Rather than build the family tree of the king, he starts chopping off branches. He is exalted as judge. We also see the exultance of God in judging the instruments of judgment. Look at verse 8. And the men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. This is the northern tribes of Israel from Samaria that are doing this. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you've killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, which would have been wrong according to the law of Moses. Male and female as your slaves, have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me. And send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. What a question. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? In other words, you didn't think God gave them into your hand because you were righteous, did you? And he's like, let's just clear that up right now. He gave them into your hands because he's disciplining them. He's chastening them. Don't think for one minute, because you're the instrument of this, that you're righteous. Again, that's the danger of interpreting life through circumstances, not the word of God. We just can't conceive of God and his ways apart from his word, apart from his revelation. Because we will wrongly conclude that he is against us when he's actually for us. And we'll wrongly conclude that he's for us when he's actually against us. And that's what Israel's going to do. Oh, look at this great victory that we've won. The Lord must think we're amazing. We can just do whatever we want. And the prophet's like, uh-uh. Do you not have sins of your own? Yeah, now you're incurring more wrath than what you'd already had. And they actually wisely received that counsel. Some of the leaders of Israel are going to come out and heed it, and they're going to clothe and feed and send all those captives back to Judah. We also see the exaltedness of God in humbling sinners. Look at verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help, 
For the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives. And again, he, rather than just get the picture of what God is doing, he sends to Assyria for help. And the Philistines had made raids on the cities, the Negeb of Judah, and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ajalon, and Gedaroth, and Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. Verse 19, the explanation. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very, here's the word again, unfaithful to the Lord. God's humbling them. Humbling Judah, humbling Ahaz because of faithlessness, because of being unfaithful to the Lord. That's what he's doing. He's using all these circumstances to humble them. All these circumstances to invite them to repentance. All these circumstances to show them the cost of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Now there's a statement about how the world works. There's a statement about how when we run to false refuges, run to false helps, You get this momentary deliverance and then affliction. Then something worse comes. For Ahaz took a portion of the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. What we actually know later is that the king of Assyria actually came in and, yes, defeated the enemies of Judah and then just took a bunch of other stuff as well. So you know what? While I'm here, how about if I just take everything? The Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz. And how did he humble them? Well, Tiglath-Pileser, he's going to come against them and afflict him instead of strengthen him. They're going to pay out a bunch of money, but it's not going to help them. Because we just can't buy our way out of sin. We can't buy our way out of trouble with God. And praise God, the way out of trouble with God is completely free (laughs) to us. Costly to his son. Free to us. He just invites... Repent, believe, mourn and grieve over your sin and return to me and you'll be saved. It's amazing how free grace is, how free God's mercy is. Yet you try to buy it and it doesn't help, especially from another king. Because in one way, the king of Assyria is going to help deliver them. In another way, he's going to bring them into another kind of bondage, which really is the way the world works. It helps relieve one problem, but then it creates new problems. And I can tell you, for all the years I spent working in secular psychology, I saw it everywhere. We're going to help you out of depression by giving you self-esteem. Not realizing, okay, you just gave them a triple dose of something worse than where they were. We're going to help you with anxiety, but through some mix of rationalism, behaviorism, medication, restructure, all this kind of stuff that is going to, you're still going to hope in you and hope in people. So you might feel a little better, but you're further from God than you were to begin. And you need him less than you ever did. And I could go on for days with all the examples of here the world says, take this will help you with this. And there's an immediate relief, but then long-term consequences. We just have to interpret everything through the word of God. 
You might feel better, but then you feel less need for Christ than before. You might numb your pains and troubles, but then be less alert to greater dangers. Because only the Lord can deliver us from real danger. And then lastly, we see the exaltedness of God in ruining unrepentant sinners. Look at verse 22. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, the same King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped him. He said, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. End of verse 23. But they were the ruin of him and all Israel. They were to his ruin. These things that were given to help him destroyed him. These things that gave this momentary deliverance moved him further from God. And you see the exaltedness of God in all that and over all that. He knows how to ruin sinners. He knows how to sort of let them carry out the full sort of penalty of their error. All these helps to Israel didn't really help Israel. They plundered them. They didn't really rescue Ahaz. They simply gave Ahaz a false confidence that simply encouraged him to keep hoping in false gods that could never deliver, which is a terrible result. And so the nation of Israel was ruined by forsaking their covenant with the Lord in order to make an alliance with the world. And despite, you think about it though, despite all his sin, despite all the sins of Judah, just you see, I think, even the Lord's patience all along the way. He's going to reign for 16 years. God's going to be patient with him. All the words of the Lord that are delivered to him, available to him. But he just wouldn't repent, and so he slept with his fathers, verse 27. What it means is they didn't bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel, It says there, because he was faithless to the God of Israel. So he's going to sleep with his fathers, but some of those are going to be some of his idolatrous fathers. He's not going to be brought into certain tombs that were for the faithful kings of Israel. So even the people knew at that point, yeah, you can't bury him there. He worshiped idols. You got to bury him over here. So a faithless king given a loveless burial is a testimony to the exaltedness of God. He knows where to bury the faithless kings. And he knows where to bury you. That's why it's glorious in Revelation how the resurrection is even going to work of the body. Where you're going to die and your body's going to be put in the grave. Your soul's depart to be with the Lord. Your body's going to decay and return to the dust. And on the last day, God's going to raise it. He's going to know where every particle of your body is. And he's going to raise it and put it back together and glorify it. It's beautiful. He knows where we are. Even when we're in the ground, he knows where we are. But you look at Ahaz and say, is his fate not the fate we all deserve? This is where we have to be careful, right? Is is his fate not the fate we all deserve apart from Christ? And so we need to praise God that he does not only exalt himself by condemning sinners, as we saw with Ahaz, but he also exalts himself by saving sinners which is where we're going to close, is there's the exaltedness of God in judging and condemning the rebellious. But 
There's another way God exalts himself in scripture and in history, and that is by saving sinners. That's even his greater, more exalted work. So that's where we'll close. That before God intervened with his grace, we were all like Ahaz. Maybe we remember, maybe we don't, how we used to demean God, how we used to worship idols, how we used to exalt ourselves, because even 10-month-old babies do. That's just what it means to come into the world as a sinner. That's why St. Augustine said, you know, I would have strangled my mother while nursing in her breast if I had had the strength to do so. That was his picture and reflection of his sin, sinful condition before Christ intervened. He says, I just wasn't capable of it as an infant, but I would have. And as soon as I learned to talk, I did. As soon as I had the strength, I did revile God. We were not capable of seeing or rectifying the problem. That's why even when someone, you can look back on that day where you repented and believed, someone maybe shared the gospel with you, it clicked for the first time, and you repent and believe, and there's something the days after that makes you feel like you did it, right? Like, I did it. I, and then you spend the rest of your life realizing what actually really happened. And what really happened is like the Spirit of God turned the lights on. What really happened was the Spirit of God like, gave you a new heart that was alive and could believe and could actually trust and repent in Christ. You actually start reinterpreting your life through Scripture and going, oh, wait a minute. God rescued me. That's what happened. God in his grace and mercy brought me to faith and repentance, showed me the glory of his Son, united me to Jesus through the Spirit, raised me, we just couldn't provide a salvation of our own. So we look to Scripture, we look to the gospel and see that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded where Ahaz failed. Jesus succeeded where we all failed. Satan tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread, to which he replied, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3 Satan's going to tempt Jesus to put God the Father to the test, to which Jesus replies, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. And then Satan's going to say to Jesus about the kingdoms of the world, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve, quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus is going to be tested just as Ahaz was tested, except he's going to succeed where Ahaz failed, succeed where Adam failed. Jesus Christ was faithful. Jesus Christ is faithful. Listen to Hebrews 3, 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son See the same words, servant and son, that Ahaz is going to use? He's going to look at the king of the world and go, I'm your servant and I'm your son. He was going to say, actually, Jesus is the true servant. And he's the true son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so Ahaz is going to exalt himself and was faithless toward, the Lord, toward God. And so God's going to lower him and judge him. Ironically, Jesus is going to lower himself rather than exalt himself. Be faithful in everything where Ahaz was faithless. And then be judged in our place. And for this reason, the Father is going to exalt him above everything. 
Ahaz is going to try to go this way, and God's going to bring him here. Jesus goes this way, and the Father's going to bring him here. And us with him. Listen to Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What I want to focus on is just the beauty of that statement. The God has exalted him above everything. Why? Because he gave his life to reconcile sinners. Because he emptied himself to take the form of a man, become obedient, go to the cross to provide an atonement for the sins of his people. And God goes, that's worthy of exaltation. That's to be exalted above every name, above everyone. Because pride really is premature self-exaltation. Humility is going the other way, trusting that God will exalt us at the proper time. So here we see Jesus lowering himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men, humbling himself, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for that reason, the Father exalts him above everything. That God the Father is exalted in humbling and judging and condemning sinners, but even more exalting even more exalted in humbling and judging and condemning his son in the place of sinners so that all who repent and believe in him can be saved. That's the way out. Not calling on the king of Assyria. Not calling on things in the world. It's calling on the name of the Lord. It's approaching God through Jesus. It's receiving forgiveness through Jesus. And then as Christ was exalted above every name, so on the last day we will be exalted with him, to reign with him. Because in so doing, the Father has now exalted the name of his Son above every name. And praise God, he will someday exalt you who are in him. So Ahaz shows us that what we were. Ahaz shows us what we deserved. But Christ saves us from that. Christ redeems us from that. Christ grants us what we don't deserve. Listen to this in Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's Ahaz and Pharaoh and others. In order to make known the riches of his glory... For vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's you and me. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's some of how we're meant as Christians to read some of these Old Testament passages. You're looking at what if God, desiring to show his wrath, to show his power, to show his exaltedness, 
upon these vessels of wrath reserved for this, deserving of this, just as all deserve it, and did that to show us his mercy, to show us his grace, to exalt the glory of his grace that he lavished upon us as vessels of mercy that were given that. That's why I've often said we ought to be the most thankful people in the universe, the most humble people in the world, the most grateful people in the world, the most loving people in the world, because we've been given this. Like, what else do we need, really? What can this world really give us when we've been given so great a salvation? Who is a God like our God? Vessels prepared for destruction, he ruins. Vessels prepared for mercy, he restores. And we're just meant to go, who is a God like our God? So exalted in holiness, so exalted in power, but so exalted in grace, so exalted in mercy, so exalted in steadfast love that he would send his own son to redeem us. We've got a few minutes left for questions or comments or other statements before we wrap up. Any questions, any comments? Say that again. Uh, how's Luke's mother doing? How's Luke's mother doing? No, your wife's mother. Oh, Ruth's mother. I'm sorry, I heard Luke. Ruth's mother. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, so, so yeah, Ruth's mom, some of you may know, took a fall, broke her arm. Um, slowly recovering, um, but it's, it's, it's slow. And so you can be praying for her, praying for us. Yeah. Thank you, though, for asking. Other comments, questions? All right, let me pray for us.